Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Victor J. Blue. But before we get to that, we are sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. Uh, I also just want to let you know that the next episode might be a little later than usual. My family and I are going on a well-needed vacation. Uh, we'll be spending a little time in Rome, which we are very excited about. And then when I get back, I'll be installing the next show at the JKC Gallery, which is a show about portraiture, which includes 10 current and former Mercer County Community College students, including a number of my own uh, former students. So I'm very excited to hang that show. All right, so again, my guest today is Victor J. Blue, and he is a documentary photographer who works in a lot of conflict regions. He also likes to do his own writing when he's putting together a story. So we have a really great conversation about the way he works and uh, also his recent show, Cities in Dust, which was at the Bronx Documentary Center, was a show that he did all in film and all using a 6x17 Fuji panoramic camera. So we have a great conversation about this show. And so let me read a little bit about this from the Bronx documentary website. Victor J. Blue's panoramic photographs of the destroyed cities of Raqqa, Syria, and Mosul, Iraq navigate a landscape of devastation from aerial bombardment scarcely seen since World War II. Between October 2016 and October 2017, from the beginning of the campaign for Mosul until the end of that for Raqqa, the U.S.-led coalition dropped 46,683 air-released munitions in Iraq and Syria, mostly on the twin capitals of the ISIS caliphate. Uh, the city's destruction begs the question, what was the cost of the West's war against extremism if the battlegrounds remained permanently uninhabitable? And so Victor and I will talk about how he approached this work and how he was looking for what he referred to as broken domesticity in the aftermath of all the bombings. And this very much is a theme in Victor's work. Uh, he is concerned with not just the conflict, but what happens after the conflict and how do we hold people accountable for the decisions that have caused so much destruction. Let me just read to you a little bit from Victor's bio. Uh, Victor J. Blue is a New York-based photojournalist whose work is most often concerned with the legacy of armed conflict, human rights, and the protection of civilian populations. He has worked in Central America since 2002, concentrating on social conflict in Guatemala, and since 2009 has photographed the counterinsurgency war in Afghanistan. He has completed assignments in Syria, Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, Iraq, and India, and has documented news, stories, and social issues across the United States. His work has been supported by grants from the NPPA and Ohio University. In 2010, 11, and 15, his work in Afghanistan was honored in Pictures of the Year International, and in 2017, he garnered three awards from Pictures of the Year International. And this is not on his bio, but he also happens to be a really decent person. And I really loved talking to him. So thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. And we will talk after I return from Rome. Ciao. SF Chronicle in like 05 or 06. Uh -huh. They were doing this podcast series with some of those, their stories and I did a I did a good sized story for them about gangs in, uh -huh. in Guatemala and we sat down and it was like this crazy like 
five part podcast there's it's still online somewhere you can Holy find cow. it i mean it was like each part was only like 15 minutes long but it was it was kind of crazy it was a little <laughs> intense yeah i wish i had started i wish i had had this idea earlier because i love it i really do it's an amazing thing the way it's kind of come back around you know for sure it's yeah it's something else it's absolutely cool. yeah and so how do you find the folks that you're that you want to talk to it, the more you, the more people you meet, the, the bigger the network gets. Yeah. And that's really how it's been. Myrtle Bovart yeah. reached out to me a while back with kind of a list of people she thought might be interesting. She liked the show. And, cool. And so I, um, now I reach out to her and she reaches out to me. And, and nice. I just saw that you were connected with Myrtle. She sent out a, a PR, a press release about yeah, yeah, yeah. your show. She does PR for the, B, the BDC. Yeah. So all, a, lot of the, a lot of the folks that I've, um, I've had uh, connected to the BDC have come through Myrtle. Yeah. Cool. But, and, and I think that connection came because I, I met Michael Camber here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He was on a panel talk cool. about nonprofits in oh, the arts. Cool. And uh, he kind of stood out as uh, as the person who was like, um, I don't know why we're talking about all this other stuff. <laughs> yeah, he's a little kind of direct action sort of dude. Yeah, it was great. It was a great panel. And um, and then yeah, I think that's I think that's how it all started. And you just had a you have a show up right now called Cities in Dust at the Bro- uh, at the Bronx Documentary Center. Yeah, and it's panoramics of Iraq. And Syria. And Syria. Yep. Yeah. And you're a conflict photographer. Uh, I mean, I cover conflicts as kind of part of what I do, but I don't kind of think of myself. I don't kind of auto-define as a conflict photographer. I'm actually suspicious that there are such things as conflict <laughs> photographers per se. I get the same reaction from street photographers who oh, really? don't, don't like to identify as street photographers because the names are very, the names are both too vague and too pigeonholing in a sense. In a right? sense, yeah. yeah. Also, there's so much kind of mythology around war photography and war correspondence and i like admire people who do that kind of work who poke holes in that mythology yeah and and it's entertaining for and i like to poke holes in it too (laughs) because i don't like to be too precious about what i do yeah yeah i think that's a that's a big part of not wanting a a label Uh, but you you also um self-describe uh on your website at least as interested in the legacy of conflict yeah absolutely that's really fascinating well, I mean, that's kind of how I got started is, is taking pictures in, in, in Guatemala and, and covering a kind of legacy of, of a very difficult situation there and kind of having a sort of a sadness about not having been there for it, not having, I wasn't kind of old enough and also I, got, I came to photography a little late in life, so mm. I wasn't around to cover the actual conflict, but it was so obvious how much of the of the leg, how much the country still suffered from the legacy of it, you know? And so I, uh, so yeah, that, that was kind of how I got started. And I'm still interested in that, you know? I mean, I'm interested in, in these stories past. I mean, I work for the headlines, but I also, am, my interest kind of stays on after the headlines fade. Yeah. Well, the, the legacy of conflict now seems to be endless conflict, right? <laughs> <laughs> it feels that way right now. That's for sure. In our current kind of context. Yeah. It definitely feels that way. And, um, and, you know, our job is to keep making work that speaks to both to the conflicts as they unfold and also what they're going to mean. You know, we, our, our job is to hold our political and military leaders accountable 
for the the decisions they make and the people they affect, you know. Yeah, so you really you really believe in the the fourth estate idea, the of the role of journalism. Yeah, I do. I I'm a big believer in, in my in my mission as a journalist. I mean, I I, lo- I love photography. I love making photographs. I love communicating visually, but I don't there's not a lot that I do visually some, but there's not a lot that I do that's kind of very far outside of that mm-hmm. impulse. Yeah. The reception for the show and the show will be down. Uh, everything will have passed by the time this uh, comes out, but yep. how how was the reception? I, I don't. I mean, I haven't. It was the first exhibition I've had in New York City. Uh, it seemed pretty good. Like a lot of people uh-huh. came out. People seemed to really like the installation uh, and the way the photographs were presented, and they seemed to. It's the, they kind of uh, they seemed to get it. You know, I was really pleased with that. And then, and then I gave a artist talk the, the following week, and that seemed to go pretty well. And that was a, a an interesting. I mean, I've I give talks about my work. You know sometimes here and there, mm-hmm. but I never give talk. I haven't ever given like an artist talk before where I kind of had to think about, um, I had to think kind of hard about my, the process of how I came to make these pictures and, and then articulate it, which was an interesting process for me, an interesting thing for me to do. And yeah, yeah it seemed like it went pretty well. People, it was, it was a lot of people there. Yeah. There's, there's, with the kind of work you do, which is a documentary in nature, there's two kinds of talks. There's talks that about the information in the images and then there's talks about who you are and the what you know why you pick what you pick and how you do what you do and right absolutely absolutely and that's those can be kind of confusing to kind of go between sometimes and you know a big part of what I do is to that's kind of the difference between like a documentary photographer especially a photojournalist and like an art photographer is my job is to as much as I can kind of fade into the background you know, I'm not, the work is not about my ideas or my innovations. I'm working just like very clearly within the conventions of a, of a history of a legacy of documentary photography. I'm trying to move the ball forward. I'm trying to do it to the best I can, but it's not, that's not what it's about. You know, it's about the the subject matter and the way that the the viewer engages with the subject matter through the medium of photography. So it's a, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. (laughs) And it was an interesting challenge to kind of like talk about my own, thought process and my own kind of, I don't know, journey sounds weird, but that <laughs> to some degree. Journey's become one of those words where you, you just, you feel a weird saying it, right? <laughs> exactly. Overused, That's overused right. word. <laughs> well, the, the name of the show is Cities in Dust and you chose a panoramic format. So I am going to ask you a little bit about process. Uh, how, how did you come about that? Why the panoramic format? Well, I, is I, it is it digital or film? It's all film. Oh, yeah. Um, it's all shot on a camera called a Fuji GX six seventeen, which is a medium format oh, panoramic camera. I love that camera. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah I, do, I know it's it's an amazing camera. <laughs> yes. But I started shooting panoramic pictures like a long time ago. I had a friend that let me borrow an X pan even before I was a photojournalist when I was first starting out, and then I bought an I've had a couple of my own X pans, and I incorporate that format into my work regularly. I love the format. I love working in it. I've like worked hard over the years to kind of figure it out. Mm-hmm. And then uh, last year I was at a I was at the National Geographic seminar in DC and I met a photographer there named Ian Tay, who's a great photographer that has a ton of important work from China. And we were kind of chatting after his talk. I was like, oh you shoot panoramics. That's cool. Yeah X Pan I use one too. He's like, oh no, it's this thing. And he showed me a picture <laughs> of it on his phone and I, I thought this monster what camera <laughs> is that, and so I became obsessed with it, and I started trying to buy one, and then I started, um, and I couldn't find one to buy, and, and mm-hmm. I started pitching the story, and then so panoramics have always have kind of been a part of my project work for a long time, but this was the first time yeah. with this camera, and the reason I chose it was, you know, I could have shot X Pan pictures, and and this was a 
I, I wanted to go shoot landscape. Like I wanted to push myself to shoot landscape. I'd never shot landscape before. I can't claim that I really understand landscape photography, like what it is or how it works. But I wanted to push myself to try something outside of my normal kind of reportage sort of thing that I love to do. And I wanted to do, I wanted to try to reckon with the scale of the destruction. I wanted to try and match the scale with an aesthetic and a format that would kind of do it justice and that would like help the reader kind of get inside of it. Like I'd seen, I covered the battle for Mosul, uh, the first wave of it, the first half of it kind of, so to speak in October and November of 2016. And then I wasn't there for the West, for the Western, the second phase of it. And then I, I'd been to Syria once early, early in the war. And then I'd never gone back and I, and I didn't cover the battle for Raqqa. So but I'd heard about the destruction. I'd seen kind of pictures on the wire and a lot of Tyra's made amazing work about the aftermath of those two, of those two battles. But I wasn't seeing the kind of pictures that I, that I wanted to see. I wasn't seeing pictures that made me feel like I was inside of the destruction and, and that reckoned with what that destruction meant. You know, there were pictures that used like the conventions of photojournalism to great effect, but they weren't, kind of, I wasn't getting it as much as I wanted to from it. So that's, that was the impetus to go do it and to use that format. Are all the photos in black and white? Yeah, they yeah. are. They're okay. all, yeah. I shot black and white Triax on 120 film. It's only <laughs> four frames per roll. Yes. I didn't bring enough film. So <laughs> it was like really cramming to get them all in there. The camera's very unwieldy to use. You know, you have to use a tripod and you have to use a cable release. It's, a, it, it's a funny camera. If you've never seen it, it's it, of course, 17 centimeters is the film width, but it's bigger than that. And it's has little roll bars on the front of the lens, right? Yeah, and it's got a cage on it. It yeah. has a cage and, and a neutral density filter yeah. to make the edges more evenly exposed. It's, it's quite a Frankenstein of a camera. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a large format lens mm -hmm. mounted on a kind of 120 roll film camera. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it's weird to use. It's not easy <laughs> to use. I was kind of shocked at how much stuff actually came out. But, you know, and, and it made you, it really made you, I mean, it's kind of a trope, but it really did make you slow down. Yes. Like, oh no, that's, that's why I still teach film photography. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. and you know, every picture you're, 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 you know, you have a finite amount of resources. Every picture you also know you have to process contact sheet, scan, edit, retouch. Like you're like you, every one of them, you really, you know how much work yeah. is going to go into it. So you, you have to like push really hard to get the picture you want. And that was, it was, and you know, I was shooting, um, at least in Mosul, I was shooting digital. I was shooting digital alongside kind of both of them. In Mosul, I was also shooting some assignment work on the side as well. So uh, digitally, so I, I kind of had both going on a little bit. And then in Raqqa, it was more, I was, I mean, I was still doing the same thing, but um, I wasn't on assignment, but so, you know, I was doing other things on the side, but it was, you, you really had to like, <laughs> and you know, you mess up so many pictures too. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. You forget to wind it or you don't, oh, yeah. you don't change the focus. Does it allow you to double expose without winding? Uh, yeah, you oh, can, yeah. you can. I did that. I did that a number of times. <laughs> and the focus thing is, a, is, is bonkers. You know, I, like, you know, there's, it's got a distance scale on it and, you know, you have to shoot, like it has no depth of field. So you have to shoot like crazy, at least F16, sometimes F22 if you can. Mm. And then, you know, you're just looking at the lens barrel, which should be easy enough, but uh, somehow I like didn't estimate this, the, the distances. Right. And then I also had this great idea. I was like, oh, I'll buy a laser rangefinder from home Depot and measure right. the distances. Measure feet. And, right. Right. Well, <laughs> or meters in the case of that lens. Oh but, yeah. But then 
my first day in Mosul, I got out of the car and I started using this thing. And then I look down and I look around and I'm thinking, man, if the cops show up, this yeah, is going to look really bad. <laughs> so I chucked it. So I was like, man, I can't have this thing in the car with us where they're going to search the car and we're going to be in, yeah. this is going to look terrible. So I just had to kind of wing it. You that, know? yeah, that, that, that looks too much like a weapon. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like you're up to no good. Right. Know? Like why are you secretly going around measuring things with lasers? Right. Totally. It was awkward. <laughs> but I imagine, um, for a, per- for a person who's primarily a people photographer because of the, the work you do, one of the things that happens with, first, working with a large format camera on a tripod is there's this static quality. Then there's the, 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 the problem of avoiding making, not the problem, the sort of the early on inexperience of working with panoramic where you're just trying to fill things that are long and wide. And then there's the issue that you uh, deal with, I think, very well, and that is finding the humanity in the landscape. Yeah, those are cha- those are, those are <laughs> challenges. I mean, the panoramic thing. I've like I kind of had a since I worked at Xpan for so long, and I worked it alongside with thirty five millimeter format always at the same time. I like have become. I've kind of figured out like how to work, 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 and then all of a sudden the panoramic pictures sort of appear to me, and I just pick that camera up, and make a picture. So my hit to miss ratio is usually higher. With uh, the panoramic than it is with the because you know at 35 especially with digital like we just you're just firing we away we just grind away <laughs> and so you kind of but it's cool because you kind of work out a scene and you really work towards the picture you want and then and so I'm kind of used to that um, and also it's weird there are fewer kind of compositional possibilities with the format which makes you really it is yeah dial in and kind of focus yeah. another thing about the panoramic that's 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 that I really love is that you get such a wide view without the distortion distortion of a of a 35 millimeter frame or like a really wide angle lens and so it has a much more lifelike quality one of the things I always struggle with is I see a lot I don't know how I see a lot of photographers who like you look at the pictures you feel like you're standing in the picture yeah and I <laughs> struggle with making a picture where I feel that way but with the but with this format I'd always feel that way. So that, that was cool. But then, yeah, with the, with the humanity thing, like it, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to really, I wanted to talk about the scale of the destruction and the scale of what, you know, that level of violence applied by our military does. But I also wanted to talk about kind of the shattered domesticity that it, that it engendered, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was looking for details and I was looking for like interiors and I was looking for things that aren't, that aren't typically landscape. And then I kind of struggled too with like whether to put people in the picture or not. So like a lot of the pictures have like a version with somebody walking through it and a version with not. Cause I was just standing in the street right. in Syria thinking, is this good with a person or is this good without a person? I don't know. <laughs> right. And then I would make it kind of some both ways or some one or the other. And then in the editing process, I kind of split the difference, you know, some of them it worked and some it didn't work. Some it was more powerful without. So that was an interesting kind of way to or you know i didn't anticipate that going into it yeah but but even even when people are included there they become part of the landscape right in this kind of format yeah they're not in this format and in this in this project i they're they're definitely not protagonists so Mm -hmm. much as they're they are like uh yeah part of the landscape part of the you know their the social landscape yeah wandering through it and then i also did a in, in in the exhibition I also did a portrait series. I, you know, I brought a black kind of backdrop, and and through the course of my days in the field, I would we would be working with my friend Barzan Jabbar, who was fixing for me, and we would uh, encounter people along the way and stop and do interviews and shoot portraits. And so there's a projection in in the front room of the exhibit of portraits of folks that we encountered along the way, and and then a, a couple lines of biographical lines about them. 
and then a quote from each person as well from the interview from the interviews that we did um, because I didn't want it to be you know faceless like that it's super important to me to include the the kind of human aspect of it there's a lot of people I think who work in in this kind of way where that kind of completely fades out of it for them like I think a lot of photographers see it as a as important to their expression to kind of anonymize what they're doing. And that's kind of the, that's the, that really is the opposite of what I want to do. I don't want to anonymize the people or the, or the, or the context that I'm photographing. I want to, I want to be more specific. I want to be, I want to introduce, introduce viewers to more people, not less, you know? Mm. So, so I, I wanted to include that aspect of it as well. Yeah. And, and so you have photographed in conflict and you've photographed post conflict. And do you think, do you think in general people have a a pretty poor understanding of, well, at least here in the United States, of what's going on in these countries? I don't know if they have a poor one. I mean, I think people follow the news as much as they can. I think that um, I think that we have, in many ways, a better journalism than we've ever had, but we're also more distracted than we've ever been. And, you know, like, yeah. I compete for attention. Like, I compete. Yeah. My, you know, I, I do a story about landmines and unexploded weapons in Afghanistan, and I'm competing with you know, a tweet, mad, mad men, you know, <laughs> yes. like for somebody's precious and I get it. Like yeah. somebody comes, comes home from work, they've got, you know, 30 minutes in between getting the kids in bed and mm-hmm. saying, and you know, talking with their spouse and paying the bills and making macaroni and cheese. And you know, they don't have a lot of time for the, the tragedies of the world. So I, I, I take that seriously. That means I have to make the work that I produce has to be that much better. It has to be, I have to, I have to kind of reward people Mm-hmm. for clicking. I have to reward people for sitting down to read what I write or look at the pictures that I write. And I reward them by hopefully moving them emotionally, but also informing them intellectually. And, and I want people to be smarter, yeah. not dumber after they look at the work. So, but I think people, I mean, you know, you know, it's hard, it's hard to understand the world. And it's hard to know. And it's our job to, to be good, good interlocutors with these big questions. So I don't blame people for not understanding I, I do feel like that we get distracted by the bells I, oh, and whistles. Oh, yeah, I wasn't blaming people. Honestly, yeah. I was got mostly blaming cable news. <laughs> well, I mean, God, yeah, okay, so for sure. Definitely, definitely cable news. I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying it, but I almost, know, right? broadcast <laughs> journalism to me is almost an oxymoron. Like, so little of what happens on there is actually journalism. And I don't even, you know, when people say, oh, you're a member of the media, I'm like, I'm not the media. I'm a journalist. <laughs> like, the media includes the Kardashians. I'm not, right, I don't right. have anything to do with that. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm completely Are you uh, freelance primarily? Freelance? Yeah, I'm a freelance photojournalist. You know, I, uh, I, I live here in New York and I work, I, I, I work as an assignment photographer. I, uh, I used to work at newspapers in the, in the, in the, in the Bay area in California. And then I was a staff photographer in a newspaper in the central Valley of California. Oh, like the Sacramento ago. Bee or, uh, just in the, at the Stockton record. Oh, just okay. The, we competed <laughs> with the, we tried to compete with the Sacramento Bee, but, but I, I loved it. I loved working there. I, I miss, I miss working there every day. Mm-hmm. It was a great, great place to work, a great experience. And we did a lot of great journalism there. Yeah. And I loved working as a staffer. But nowadays, you know, I do a lot of stuff that you can't really do as a staffer. So, right. So, yeah, I'm a freelancer. Yeah. So when you're, when you do go overseas, are you, do, are you ever going on your own and then bringing back work or do you go out on assignment most of the time? It's both. It just depends. You know, I, it's kind of half and half. You know, I, I, I go out on assignment regularly, you know, I cover stories in New York, but also across the United States and overseas. 
And then sometimes, you know, I do, I also do a lot of enterprise work where I I'm researching and pitching stories that I'm interested in. And I work with my editors and I work with partners at, at, at publications that are interested in the stuff I'm interested in. And then we publish, you know, and sometimes those pitches become assignments or sometimes I go do them and I come back and, and then we find a home for them. Like this work was also published on time.com. One of my picture editors, the, the irrepressible and brilliant Thea Traff was, uh, really championed it. I came back with the work. I showed it to a bunch of people. I showed it to her. She really wanted to do it. They couldn't squeeze it in the magazine, but they did it. They gave it a really nice online treatment. And Mm. so that's the kind of thing, you know, like I knew I had to do this work. I knew I really wanted to do it. Um, and it came about in kind of a weird way. Like I was, I had a long complicated, uh, summer and fall of assignment work. And I was trying to do another overseas story and didn't work out. And then my buddy, Luke Mogelson, the uh, New Yorker magazine writer. I had covered the battle for Mosul with him for on assignment for the New Yorker. And he, you know, called me up and said, Hey, I'm going to go to back to Mosul. And we're going to visit our guys. We covered, we did a story called the Avengers of Mosul for the New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. Uh, yeah. The SWAT team. Yeah. But yeah, let's, we'll come back to that. Yeah. Okay. So he was like, I'm going to go back and visit these guys. Let's go. Let's just go to Mosul and hang out. We're not going to write a story. We're not going to go on. A, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to go hang out. And I was like, "Great, let's do it." Like, I want to see. I want to see how they're doing. And uh, so he was there for a week, and we kind of went back and forth between Erbil and Mosul. And did that, and then he. When you, you know, say your guys, who are you talking about? SWAT team. You oh, you're talking about the fighters. The fighters. We went yeah, back yeah. and visited them. Do you refer to them as your guys? Like, because yeah, you get guys. to know them. Oh, you yeah. Hang out with them. They. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah, still yeah. in contact with them. You know, yeah. like for sure. And so. And then, you know, Luke left and I stayed for two more weeks and, and I, you know, I brought the camera knowing I was going to do this. I kind of took advantage of the, like the trip to go, to go do this work. I mean, he had already split, but, uh, okay. you know, that's what I said. We might as well talk about it while yeah. we're here. The, the SWAT team was a, a mix of uh, Sunni and Shia fighters and they were there to root out ISIS, right? Yeah. The SWAT was a group of kind of an elite police unit from Nineveh, prov- uh, Nineveh police. Did they take the, the name from... American trainers. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Special <laughs> weapons and tactics is what SWAT stands for. Mm-hmm. And they, they had been stood up by uh us green Bay trainers back in the um, mid aughts during the, you know, in the years of the insurgency in Iraq after the invasion by the U S and 03. And they had kind of been doing the same thing for years and years and years. I mean, that was their job. They were counterterrorism police and they had a kind of a blood rivalry with, um, and you know, it's funny. So the, kind of Arabic term for referring to ISIS is Daesh. And they made no distinction between Daesh of now that we consider ISIS and Daesh from 12 years ago. Mm. To them, it's, you know, it didn't matter if it was Al-Qaeda, it didn't matter if it was ISIS, didn't matter who it was, if they were, you know, Islamist fighters or Islamist, you know, terrorist cells. Right. It was all the same to them. They'd been fighting to them the same enemy. And to them, and a lot of the characters were the same too. So Luke found them. I'd been in Iraq that summer on another story. And then Luke got the assignment and I got the assignment to work with him. We already knew each other from Afghanistan and he went to Iraq and found this unit, listened to their personal stories and realized that the, the difference with them was that they had all suffered personally at the hands of ISIS and they were all from Mosul. So they were like, and they had all been expelled by ISIS. They'd been living in exile in, in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan. You think and, you described it as fighting their way back home. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. They were fighting their way back to their their wives and kids. You mm. know? And so that was an, a, it was an amazing experience hanging out with, with them. And, and we spent, you know, six weeks with them, slept with them, ate with them, 
watched them fight, um, watched them die. You know, guys that we were friends with were killed during the battle. And so we had a real interesting connection. And then, you know, Luke wrote this kind of epic, you know, I mean, it was a 20,000 word piece in the New Yorker. It was a wow. massive piece. It was, you know, the only feature that I think that that week they ran a bunch. I mean, I think they ran seven pictures in the magazine, which is not common for the New Yorker. Right. And it was, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, it was for me, it was the best piece of, of war reporting that's been written since, since, since September 11th. It was, it was a great, it was a great experience to work with him and a great experience with those guys. So we, you know, and we keep in touch with these guys, you know, like yeah. they Facebook me all the time and you know, WhatsApp with us and we, and they've know, made real progress, right? I mean, they, they, yeah, ISIS <laughs> is gone. Like, and yeah. they, you know, and, and again, we went back and visited them last November and they have a new base and you know, it's a sad thing that they're still fighting, still trying to stomp out ISIS cells, still dying. One of our really good friends who we visited in November, Segar, um, was killed about a month and a half ago, maybe two months now. Um, that was really a, a, a tough thing for Luke and I. We spent a lot of time with that guy. He was a brilliant, hilarious guy. He'd been, I think, he'd been shot nine times. Mm. He, you know, been had survived all manner of of insanity, but he was killed recently. Uh, yeah, it's tough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you um like were you there when some of them made it home? Uh, yeah, we were. Mm-hmm. We were for a couple of guys. Aus, we were there. We like got to go. You know, we, they liberated it. Or, or Aus, Aus is one of the fighters whose family made it across ISIS lines during the during the fighting, and we were able to like go to the his his father's home and, oh, or wow. where where his family was staying, and you know there for like the, I think like hours after he had first seen his family and introduced us to him, and then you know uh, there was you know other folks too that we, you know uh, one of our guys we were there the moment that he saw his aunt and uncle for the first time in mm. two years, you know, and the, that was a picture that was in the, on, in the online story, you know, mm-hmm. when it had, uh, embraced them for the first time seeing them since the ISIS takeover. So yeah, we were there for, for that too. And then back in, you know, we went back in November and we met, you know, Hadawi was one of our main guys that we followed in the story and he'd been fighting hard to get back to his wife and kid. And we, and we were able to meet his kid that he was fighting back and his new baby when we went back in November. So wow. yeah, it was, we, we saw kind of full circle with those guys. Yeah. 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 You, you mentioned earlier that you got into this late in life. Uh, how did you start out? You grew up in California? No, I grew, oh. I'm, from, I'm from North Carolina. I grew oh. up in North Carolina, but I've been living in as, you know, in my twenties, I spent living in the San Francisco Bay area and, and we were just kind of running around and kind of being knuckleheads. <laughs> um, and at some point I kind of, I'd been traveling a little bit, you know, going to other countries as like a tourist or backpacker or whatever. And, and I kind of started to have a feeling that I wanted to do something more serious. You know, I'd studied history and political science as an undergraduate and I always kind of wanted to, I'd always wanted to go to law school and then I kind of dropped that. And not long after I graduated college, I, my my mom gave me, I I went on a trip um, and I came back and all I had was like a cruddy point and shoot camera. And I didn't, and I, I was frustrated by the pictures. They looked so, you know, this was the mid nineties. So, you know, I got them processed at a one hour lab and, and I was frustrated. That the pictures didn't, didn't look very good. Didn't look how I remembered them. So for Christmas that year, my mom, I convinced her to buy me a manual, like Yashica, like Pentax ripoff camera <laughs> with a 50 millimeter lens. Yeah. And I started carrying that around and taking pictures of my family and my friends, you know, and after years of that, I kind of decided I wanted to get more serious about it. And I took a couple of community college photo classes, like Yay, a dark room, dark, <laughs> a dark room class. Yeah. And then, um, like, a kind of advanced dark room class, a couple of classes. 
and was realized that out, out west or back in North Carolina? In San, San Francisco San, Community College. Yeah. Yeah, I was living in San Francisco, San Francisco Community College, San Francisco, um, CCSF, and and I really in, enjoyed trying to you know. Uh, and I figured out in the course of those classes that what I liked to do ended up being documentary photography. I didn't read newspapers, I didn't magazines, I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And I worked in a photo lab. That was the other thing too, is I, I didn't know how you become a photographer. So I got a job at a one hour photo lab <laughs> and I worked there for years and I would process my film and print it for free, but I didn't know anything about photography. There was right. a couple of professional photographers that went in there, but they didn't do the kind of thing I wanted to do. So eventually I started going, I ended up going to Guatemala. A uh, ex of mine was like, we're going to go to Guatemala and study Spanish. I said, okay, sure, why not? <laughs> and so we started hanging out in Guatemala. And when I was there, like I was saying before, I went there for the first time in 2001, just before September 11th. And then I went back into, and in, in, in that year, I kind of decided I wanted to get kind of serious about photography. And I went back because, as I said, the legacy of the war years was still so on the surface there. Like it was everywhere you looked, you could really see it. And so I went back and just started trying to become a photographer. And then I went back again in 2003 and finally met some photographers. And I decided to try to cover a presidential election that fall. And I met a couple of great guys that worked for the AP down there. My buddy Rodrigo Abt, my friend Moises Castillo. And and I learned from the Guatemalan and Argentine photographers and, and international Latin American photographers who were there to cover that. Wow. They taught me, you know, uh, how to cover news events and how to cover the president and how to cover a riot and all that kind of stuff. And I was running around with them, did my first assignments ever for the Associated Press working in Guatemala and then just kind of slowly built it up from there. That's kind of how I got started. So the AP down there you were working. Yeah. 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 That was my first assignment ever. Um, (laughs) And then I, and then I did that for a couple of months, like off and on. And then at one point, like everybody went on vacation and and I had to, I think I had like a week that I had to kind of hold down the office or something. (laughs) And, uh, and there was like some fire and a market and I took a picture of it that ended up like on a couple of front pages in the region. And that was just insanely exciting. It was unbelievably exciting. What years are we talking about now? 2003 and four. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fall 2003 was the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I stayed through like the through the early, like first month or two months in 2004. And then I went back to San Francisco and tried to start freelancing. I started mm-hmm. freelancing for all these small news, regional newspapers around San Francisco, the Barrier News Group. And a lot of kind of photographers in that milieu got their start that way. There was a great photo editor for all those papers named Ron Reister who gave so many people their first shot. Mm-hmm. I remember showing my portfolio around and people were just kind of like slammed the door in my face and he was like, you got it, kid. This is great. <laughs> this is good stuff. We're going to get you in the mix. Oh, uh, yeah. And those to, those I, photo, edit, photo editors that give you a shot. Oh, man. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. he, he was an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Such an amazing guy. I used to go rent a car because I didn't have a car. So I'd ride my bike and rent a car in downtown San Francisco for the day. And then go shoot a day of assignments for him for like 110 bucks. But then minus the car and all, I'd clear like 40 <laughs> bucks or whatever just to be going and shooting assignments. But you were happy to be working, happy right? To be, happy to be not valleying cars, you know, yeah. happy to be doing something else. And <laughs> and I just kind of built it up from there and then eventually went to Stockton and, and mm-hmm. worked as a staff tower. And then I went to Ohio University and got a master's degree. In journalism? Uh, in visual communication, oh, yeah, okay. photojournalism, yeah, yeah. What was your undergrad degree in? History and political science. Oh, all yeah. right. So yeah, I was like... Not completely useless to what you do. <laughs> right? Nah, for sure. And, and, and when I kind of discovered what document photography was, I, I was like, oh, whoa, this is crazy. <laughs> like, people go out and make the kind of pictures that I'm already making. Because I, I, with my friends and with my family and stuff, I always, I didn't realize until later, but I was, I never wanted to make any pictures that weren't candid pictures. You know, I like couldn't, if people kind of posed for the camera, I would sort of stop and just Mm -hmm. kind of put the camera down because I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to try to preserve like 
what it felt like to me to be there and people kind of hamming for the camera always got in the way of that. So then when I started looking at these books of photographers and looking at the first books, the first photo books that were the kind of, you know, that really impacted me, I, it was, uh, I realized, oh, you can do the same thing that I'm doing, but apply it to historical, mm-hmm. you know, uh, contexts or, you know, breaking situations or, you know, big, big, these kind of big ideas yeah. that I, that I, I never knew you could apply this to. So, and so, you know, I have an interest in history and an interest in politics, obviously. That's the same kind of visual flexibility you need in going from 35 millimeter photographs of people to six by 17 landscapes. Right? Yeah. It yeah. does take a little flexibility. <laughs> that, that's true. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. So then you, you went to Guatemala and that's where you really like, uh, cut your teeth on, uh, doing documentary and photojournalism yeah. work and yeah. Yeah. And what? I still work there. You still go down there. I mean, you still work there. Yeah. Do you speak other languages? Well, so yeah, I speak Spanish and obviously English. Um, <laughs> I'd like to learn another, a third language, but I'm not sure. Th- I don't have an instant affinity for language like some folks do. I tried Arabic. It was, uh, yeah. It's so hard. Yeah, it it's is. It's so hard. You know, I would love to speak Dari because I work in Afghanistan a lot, but it's mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's really tough. Um, yeah. But I, I've been a Spanish speaker for a long time and it helps me out in my journalism a lot. Like mm. I work, I do a lot of immigration stories I do, and, I, and I work in the region a lot. So right, right. Um, it's, it's helpful. What did your uh, folks do? My dad was uh, in the military and then he was in um, like not book publishing, but like um, printing. He always worked at big printing companies. And my mom's a high school English teacher mm. and she's retired now, but she's a high school English teacher the whole time we were growing up and, yeah. and a remedial reading teacher as well. And, uh, and she got her master's and uh, she got her master's in English while we were in high school. And then uh, now she's a poet of oh, like wow. a multiple, a very well published poet. And she, oh, what's her name? Uh, Joe Barbara Taylor. All right. Yeah. And she, uh, yeah, she publishes a lot of poetry and she teaches poetry workshops and now she's kind of working on her, her first novel at, uh, 72, 73 years <laughs> That's old. Fantastic. Yeah. She's, yeah. Uh, she's out there. She's pretty funny. <laughs> That's great. Is your father still with you or? Uh, yeah, he lives yeah. in Tennessee. Um, oh, okay. but my mom was in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, when did they, uh, split? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, the, our folks div- divorced when I was in fifth grade, 10 years old. Oh, so did you grow up with your mother then? Yeah, I grew up with my mom. Yeah. And oh, okay. I haven't talked to my dad in decades. Wow. Yeah. Uh, definitely a child of divorce, but yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom held it down, you know, kept us, kept us on the, on track. His siblings? Know. My brother, yeah, I have a brother who lives in California mm-hmm. still. He's in publishing. Did you go out together when you went to yeah, California? Oh. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> we, we like made lots of cross-country trips. We kind of lived between North Carolina, him and I and uh, our group of friends between North Carolina and California. And at this point now, we're all middle-aged. So yeah. some have settled in California and some have settled in North Carolina kind of back and forth. Mm-hmm. And some in other spots too, but yeah, yeah. He's, he's, and you call Brooklyn your home base, right? Or? Yeah, I'm based in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my that's that's where I'm based out of. When did you end up in New York? Uh, after grad school, I like graduated from uh, Ohio University, and my cohort was a lot younger than me, and I was kind of like, oh man, what do I do now? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to go back. To, I'm not going to go back to be a staff, a newspaper photographer, and I didn't know if I wanted to go overseas or not. And then I had a friend uh, named Sandra Stevenson, who's a, an epic epic picture editor at the New York times who I had known from years before when I used to be associated with this weird agency in New York. Hmm. Um, and she was an editor there and had gone back and forth times, but I ran into her and, and I was, she was like, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know what to do. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any plan. And she was like, just come to New York. Like you'll, <laughs> you'll work for me. It'll be fine. Just come here. That's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was like, I don't know. She was like, you know, don't be a wuss. Just, <laughs> just, 
just do it. And then I came here and, and, and I started shooting for her here in the, for the Metro section of the New York Times. And, and she's a tough, tough editor, mm-hmm. very discerning, very demanding. You had to, you know, really show and prove. But she's an amazing picture editor. I, I mean, I wouldn't be a photographer if it wasn't for her still. I wouldn't still be a photographer if it wasn't for her. She's amazing. Yeah. 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 So do you think you grew up with some ideas of a kind of social justice where you sort of politically liberal, where you were politics a big part of your upbringing? Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to say I was like politically, I guess. Well, your mother, maybe. I like, guess you yeah. could say it that way. I mean, look, we grew up in North Carolina, suburban Raleigh. We're not like some, you know, I'm not going to make out like I'm some small town, like yeah. redneck guy. We, we grew up in the suburbs in Raleigh, but we grew up, you know, as a little bit outsiders, you know, we were very lower middle class. We grew up, you know, our parents had divorced. We were like very super solidly middle class. My folks mm-hmm. got divorced and we were a little bit, my brother and I were a little bit outsiders and we were, so by the time we got through high school, you know, we were very self-consciously kind of anti-racists. We were very self-consciously, you know, pushing against the kind of milieu that you grow up in in North Carolina. And, uh, but at the same time, kind of being, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of being from the South, very proud. I'm proud to be from a to have grown up in a tradition of of struggle and and a tradition of of uh, of work of hard work for folks civil rights you know and so we kind of were very self conscious about that you know I, we were, my mom was giving us books to read at a very young age that mm-hmm. that in, that put us squarely in 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 that camp you know we were very aware of of the systemic racism that that we were growing up in. And, and I also got super lucky, like crazy lucky. I grew up in the Wake County Public Schools in Raleigh, North Carolina, one of the only school systems to ever have a truly successful integration campaign. Oh, wow. My brother and I went to school our whole lives with, with in the classroom with, with black and brown students mixed in with us, you know. Um, we we're, we're, we're very fortunate to grow mm-hmm. up in that, in that kind of context for sure. Yeah. And my mom's work too. You know, my mom was a remedial reading teacher at my own high, at our high school. Like my mom was a teacher at my high school the whole four years I went there, which was awkward, but she was, but she was a remedial reading teacher. And who are the kids that end up in remedial reading classes? The more disadvantaged. Just kids right. without, you know, kids that have the, the deck stacked against them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we were friends with those kids because, because through that, you know, we knew those kids and, and my mom knew that context more intimately than other folks, other white folks growing up or, or living their lives right. in, in a socially segregated city, you know? And so we had, we had exposure to that early on. And so we were, I was, we were always kind of interested in, and engaged politically. My brother is very politically engaged. He's, oh, okay. yeah, he's in publishing and publishes a lot of political, uh, political books and, and, and we, that, and it definitely comes from, from that growing up in that milieu for sure. Hmm. But, uh, what did your mother think of you going to these areas and uh, to photograph. She, well, you know, I think she was just always sort of bemused at first. Um, <laughs> and But she gets it. She definitely gets it. And yeah. then the early years when I first started, you know, covering wars, you know, there's a different kind of thing. You, you know, it's, you know, you move, we move in a lot of unstable and strange situations, but like covering a shooting war is a different sort of thing, you know, and, and, and she struggled with it like in, like any mom would for a long, for a while. And my friends struggle with it too. You know, my family and friends struggle with it, but she gets it. Mm-hmm. They get it. They understand how important it is to me. And they, and we've, we, we have some kind of reckoning about it. You know, of course they hope nothing bad happens and I do mm-hmm. too. You yeah, know? And, and of course. I, I work hard to try to make that, mm-hmm. make that the case, but you know, I'm also clear about the risks involved. Yeah. So she's, I think, and she, you know, she's, she's, she's into the work. She's into the stories. You know, she published a book of poetry about, 
a fictional marine unit that she kind of wrote a bunch of poems about. It's a really interesting book of poetry. Yeah. And a lot of it draws from at first it was really interesting. She she drew a lot of her initial poems for that from like one of the things that I do in the course of my practice is I write I, I write a lot. So I write a lot of my own pieces and I write when I'm in the field and I write these long dispatches. Oh. And I started doing it years and years ago, but I do it from Afghanistan especially. So I write these like depending how long I'm there, I'll write four or five like and they can be really long. Like I think one of them was thirteen thousand words. I mean that can be really long. So she would draw from that and from the photographs and then I kinda was think you know we talked about it and she wanted to use some of the pictures and I was like you know look like it's I, I love that you're doing this but you got to remember like this is my journalism so I put her in contact with and she went and hung out and interviewed some of the Marines that I had embedded with oh. who were based in North and South Carolina and mm-hmm. she became friends with them and she sat down and talked with them and talked with their wives and drew on more of that to write the poems that she ended up publishing the book so it was Marines that I knew you know that I'm still in contact with as well but she went and sat down with these folks to kind of get their experience and then translate it into her yeah. kind of poetry. It's called the, the book was called uh, high ground. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And how much of your writing gets published with your work? A lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot, you know, so like a lot of what I do, like I said, is kind of enterprise work where I come up with a story and I, you know, I, uh, I pitch it and I research it and I go to, you know, shoot it. But I'm a big reader big fan of you know long form narrative nonfiction writing i i follow the narrative nonfiction writers that i love as closely as we follow photographers that we're interested in mm-hmm. you know i read all their pieces when they write them there's certain folks that i'm really into that i kind of follow what they're doing and i try to learn from them so i'm doing these enterprise stories and a lot of most of the time i'm by myself there's no reporter there you know and i'm not a person that believes in just like the inherent you know, quality or ineffability of the photograph. Like (laughs) for me, no photograph exists outside of context. It doesn't exist without words, you know, whether it be a caption or be a first person experience or or experiential thing or an interview with a subject, like all that factors into the photography for me. And and so I worked hard when I was in grad school, I worked hard to, to hone my writing to become a better narrative writer. And I do that a lot. So I've, you know, I've, I published a lot of the stuff that I do I publish, uh, you know, I've written for the New York Times. I, I wrote a piece to accompany my photographs for the New Yorker. I, you know, I, I write a lot of, I do that, I do that pretty, pretty often. Yeah. I did a story, you know, a story on veterinarians in Standing Rock. I wrote a story about landmines and unexploded ordnance from Afghanistan. I, you know, I do it. It's a regular thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you like, like you were saying, you, so you've written for the New Yorker, the New York Times, Harper's. Uh, Bloomberg, Business Week, Wall Street Journal. Well, I haven't written, no, those are people I've oh, shot photographs, for. That's photographs, that's right, have for. appeared in, that's right. I've and, written for the New York Times, I've right. written for the New Yorker, I've written for online, not in the magazine, I've written yeah. for NBC News, I've written for, um, oh, there's, a, there's a bunch more, that, you know, or Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg News as well. Mm-hmm. I write like short pieces to accompany the work. Right. I wrote this latest piece for Time Magazine, it's about 1,100 words. You know, I, I did a research, did all the reporting, researched it myself and, and wrote it. Yeah. So. And you've also shot for Sports Illustrated, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've done, I mean, you know, like any freelancer. Journalist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shot for a lot of editorial clients. I just started in right. Afghanistan for Sports Illustrated years ago. Oh, so that was in Afghanistan. Yeah. What was the story? Uh, it was cool. It was about a, it was about a young, a, a young basketball coach and I believe the seventies who started the first Afghan national basketball team who was who had reached out to the famous Lakers and UCLA and Lakers coach John Wooden who uh sent him his playbook and helped him start the first wow. Afghan basketball team and so 
and it was kind of about it was kind of about that guy and it was kind of a historical piece but so i spent some time with like the best mm-hmm. basketball player in afghanistan at the time <laughs> that's and, wild yeah it was cool it was yeah fun. But you you also do domestic assignments, right? And a lot, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and one of the things you did cover was the 2016 election. Yeah, yeah. Was was that uh, on assignment or some of that your own work too? No, that was all on assignment. That mm-hmm. was on assignment for either the New York Times or Bloomberg News. I do a lot of work with Bloomberg News as well. They're 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 a great client, kind of yeah. a small wire service. Did they were you picked for a certain kind of work or photographing a certain candidate or anything like that or well you kind of end up on a team you know Mm -hmm. um so like i covered i believe five or six primaries i can't remember five or six and then i covered both conventions so you know you get put on by one of your your clients you know so the new york times you're covering a primary you're on a team with four or five photographers and they're kind of like tagging you on certain candidates or maybe you're covering a certain region of the state or you're in and you know you're kind of running around from that um but it's not usually one candidate it's kind of more like mm-hmm. what what everybody can get to right so you're jumping back and forth between different candidates and different and different events and then and then the conventions are just a whole that's like a whole crazy <laughs> world it's kind of insane and then you kind of have your role in that too i usually end up being the kind of are you in a pool at that point at a, at a press pit or uh i'm not no oh, okay. i mean like in the convention floor we try to kind of roam around i'm usually mm. not like on a pit i'm my role usually ends up being kind of like the protest guy. Like I'm usually the guy covering all the mayhem right. outside. Um, Turning the camera around, looking for the signs in the crowd. Or? Well, no, I mean outside oh. the outside the venue in the oh, streets because okay. you know these are always accompanied by huge protests and right. and you know in that team I kind of have the most experience with mayhem and craziness so <laughs> i end up kind of doing that but then i also go in at night and i cover the you know we have a whole team of guys who are like amazing political photographers they they're insanely good at what they do yeah. i learned from them but they're there they know where to be and know how to make the the, yeah. the interesting picture and try the cool thing about that is you know you're trying to like make the picture that the news media needs but you're also trying to peel back the facade mm-hmm the facade that the campaigns are trying so desperately to put up in front of you. The ready-made images they put in front of you. Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> and it's and it's a fun challenge to try and undermine that, yes. you know, to do your best to undermine that and to show these people for who they really are. And it's and it's a valuable and it's important role we play, you know, mm-hmm. a, a really important role. We're trying to be the eyes and the ears of the people at home who can't be there and show them who the, could help them make these like really important political decisions that they have to make, you know, and, and I, and I, I take that role seriously. And I actually yeah. kind of, I actually kind of enjoy it as, as frustrating as it is yeah. and as meaningless as it can feel sometimes I, I, I take it seriously. You know, I take seriously our, our yeah. role in that. Well, do you, I mean, do you enjoy that kind of assignment work as well? I mean, you'd, you'd rather be doing what you want, really want to do obviously, but no, I enjoy it. I love it. Yeah. Like last okay. summer, you know, I shot, I was on assignment for the, the national desk, the New York times all from June till September last year. And, and I covered the family separation crisis of the border. I was doing another migration story in Idaho. I covered the anniversary of the Puerto Rico hurricane. I covered Hurricane Florence. I covered, you know, the flooding after Hurricane Florence. Like mm-hmm. there was another one in there somewhere. I'm blanking on what I did. Yeah, basically it was just like you're you not know. doing a whole lot of puff. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't do a lot of not a lot of grip luckily, and grin. Not luckily, I don't have to do a lot of that stuff. And you know, like yeah. there's a lot of us who have experience in that kind of thing. You know, I'm not obviously there's a ton of photographers better than me at it, but like <laughs> they they know to, that they can rely on us and that they they know that we know how to maneuver in these, you know. kind of delicate difficult situations that we can navigate them and produce important pictures and produce the the stuff that that the 
country in the world needs to see. And, 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 and mm-hmm. that's not always, that's not always uncomplicated to do. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's, but it's, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Yeah. Was, was the Bronx documentary center the first time you had that kind of show that, that sort of rooted in the art world as well as the documentary world? Uh, it's not the first time when I used to live in San Francisco, I mean, it's the first time in over a decade for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and the first time in New York since I've lived here for sure. Uh, you know, years and years ago when I was first starting out, I kind of, in San Francisco, I was friends with and kind of moved around in like a kind of, kind of small little art scene there. I had a lot of friends that were artists, a lot of friends that, that were making art and showing it in interesting venues. I wasn't really a part of it, but there was a kind of movement at the time called the mission school. And, you know, I was like a satellite kind of part of it or, or associated with, I had a lot of friends that were involved in it. And I used to show photographs in San Francisco and some of these kind of interesting off kind of venues. And I had a solo show about Guatemala, like early mm. on, shoot, I don't even, I think that was probably Oh four Oh five. Wow. Like yeah. early, early on. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I, I kind of didn't really know what I was doing. It was all darkroom prints and it was like, <laughs> it was kind of random. It was, it was, it was an interesting experience. It was cool. And, yeah. And it, that was at a, that was at a gallery and a design firm in San Francisco. But I, this, but th- I haven't done anything this ambitious before as far as, you know, showing, I've been in a couple like juried shows or whatever and okay, group yeah. shows, but this nothing like this before. And w- so when you're shooting in, uh, in color, is that all digital? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. More, more or less all digital. I don't, I don't really shoot, I, you know, color, digital color to me is so good now. Yes. It's, that's, that was why I switched to digital actually. <laughs> That's why I switched. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's better than like the best Chrome you could have shot yeah. 15, 20 years ago <laughs> for my money was the, the Kodak E100 films, EPP right? 100? EPP 100? Uh, I liked E100 VS. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved And EPP. I wasn't even a professional photographer. Yeah. I had all these friends that were skateboard photographers and yeah, I was yeah. like, I was like shooting pictures on the side and I was like buying some <laughs> rolls of Chrome and running them through or whatever. Yep. But even that stuff, and it looked amazing and still those slides look amazing. But yeah. now like, uh, you know, they don't even compare to what I can do with like, a full frame digital. Yeah. full yeah, frame. Yeah. Digital. It's, it's shocking how good it is. So, but I do love film. I love, I love the, I love the kind of um, tactile nature of film. I mm-hmm. love how it looks. So, but it doesn't make any sense to shoot in color because it's not going to look as good as digital. And also, color is so easily dated now. Yeah. Yes. And that's what I love about yeah, black yeah, and yeah. white is black yeah. and white is black and white no matter when you shot it. Right. Color there's there's a so, little timelessness to black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. And then um, you said you were uh, when we were arranging this, you were on your way out of the country again, or are traveling again, or? Yeah, I'm supposed to be. We'll see what happens. I'm trying to. Oh. Um, I've been in Honduras already quite a bit, three times for the for, for the New York Times so far this year, working on a variety of pieces, and now I'm trying to uh, get back down into Central America already this year. Oh, I want to work, continue working in Honduras, and I want to get down and continue working in Guatemala this year as well. It's an important time for the region and for 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 our country and. And uh, there's a lot of important, there's a lot of good stories to tell right now. Mm-hmm. And, and and right now, you know, I've been working there for, you know, a decade and a half and or more. And it's always kind of hard to get the attention of, of viewers in the United States, of readers in the United States. But right now, because of, of, of our current political climate, we kind of have their attention. And so it's an important moment to, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to really inform folks about the context yeah. of, of the region. So I'm hoping to, I'm, I, I was, there was, a, I was hoping to get down there kind of ASAP, uh, but it ends up, I'm going to put it off a little bit. Okay. Figure some stuff out. Logistical reasons, uh, personal reasons. Yeah, logistical, reasons. editorial yeah. reasons, you know, figuring out yeah. uh, who, when, who can do what, when. Oh, okay. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then are you working every day? 
Oh, I don't, I'm not on assignment every day. Yeah. No, no, okay. No. I mean, I, I try, you know, as a freelancer, you're like kind of always working, you know, like I don't really yeah. have days off. I have a lot of unstructured time that I'm not really great. <laughs> That's a good way to describe I'm it. I'm not unstructured really time. great at filling up, but I, you know, I shoot on assignment here in New York, uh, yeah. you know, uh, normally a couple of days a week, a few days a week. And then I shoot and then I'm, you know, when I'm not kind of getting assignments to travel mm-hmm. and then when I'm not doing that, I'm trying to, you know, manage my archive. I'm trying to, uh, you know, this year I'm trying to get it together and publish my first, well, I don't know if my first book cause we did a book for cities and dust, but a small, a small run book, but I'm trying to work on another book. Oh, you did a book for cities of dust. Yeah. So the exhibition oh. has, we made a, a handmade short run catalog, mm-hmm. Uh, that's there's still some available. We we made a, a, an addition of 200. The book designer Bonnie Bryant, who's kind of a brilliant book designer, she's worked with Yolanda Cuomo, another brilliant book designer mm-hmm. for years. She's a friend of mine, and uh, and she really liked the work, was really into it. Like mocked up this crazy book dummy like super fast wow. after she saw the pictures, which was sort of shocking how <laughs> how well how fast and how how it looked. It was just amazing, and so. With the BDC, you know, the BDC was like, "Oh, we love this thing. Let's let's make them." So Bonnie and I and a handful of volunteers got together and 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 built these things by hand mm-hmm. at the BDC before the exhibition. So um, and it was it's on sale at the exhibition, and then we'll be selling them until they until they sell out. We're about we're I think we're over halfway through yeah. selling them now. Um, but yeah, it's only twenty five bucks. It's, oh, nice. Yeah, handmade. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Um, Did you bring any? I'll buy one right now. Darn, I don't have one. <laughs> okay, but you know, but if you, I'll go up. I'll go up. And and the book will be available even after that from right. either from me or from the BDC. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're gonna make sure people if they. If I they get want there book, about uh, three four times a year. <laughs> I try to get there. Did you know Michael Camber beforehand? Or you know, I met him when I first moved to New York. Mm-hmm. I went to what I'm pretty sure was the first show at the BDC, which was of Tim Hetherington, who was the yes. partner he was supposed to open it with. Um, his last photographs, which were from Libya before he was killed there in 2011. Right. I met Mike, you know, at that exhibition, which was an, obviously the key, the start of all of it. But it was a weird thing. You know, I moved to New York and I like didn't know anybody in the photo world. I like don't have some high profile. I'm not some famous dude, like whatever. And I met Mike at one of his openings and and he was, he was you know, such an open such a he was such a cool guy and he and for somebody who had just shown up in new york who had, you know wasn't anybody that he had any reason to talk to he always made me feel like i was like a belong there like i was a part of it, That's it. like i he wasn't does. an outsider he was he like yeah. he really builds community around yeah. and, and a lot of different kinds of communities but he always made me feel like i like i like it was legit thing that i was there you know and so i've done as much as i can or not as much as i should but as much as i've been able to help out with the mm-hmm. BDC. You know, I donate prints to the auction and yeah. I try to, I go up and give talks when he wants me to. <laughs> and I talk to the Bronx photo league and I talk to his photo classes and um, yes, I try to mention them as much as possible. And I, I bought all their swag. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's that place. There's not anything else like that. There's no home like that for what we do for documentary photography that yeah. like he's creating, you know, the photo book library there is crazy. It is. I can't, I mean, if you have a free Saturday, if you are listening to this and you like photography, you gotta go, to the photo book library up there. It's the ins- Tim Hetherington library. The Tim Hetherington yes. library. It's insane. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's comprehensive. There's books in there that I can't afford to buy. There's books in there that, like, you That's know, right. thousands of dollars that I can't afford to buy, but I can go sit in there any Saturday and, and flip through them and, and yeah. I'm welcome. It is the most welcoming place. It is. Absolutely. It's yeah. a really community. It's a real community place. Are you uh, working on anything in the sort of the vein of, of Cities of Dust now? 
Or uh, thinking about the next thing? I am thinking about the next thing. I'm trying to think of like what, you know, like I said, this was like a departure from what I normally do. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting departure and it ended up being more successful than I thought it would. Is it? I mean, I could, totally could have fallen on my face. Like I didn't know how to make landscape pictures and and um, and it worked out, you know, the show and it was published and it, it worked out pretty well. So I'm trying to figure out, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'll never leave behind the kind of like narrative, personal character driven photography that I love, but I am interested in figuring out new ways to incorporate other approaches into that photography. And with, you know, and obviously like panos are a big part of all my project work, hmm. but yeah, I'm thinking about what the next thing to do, whether I continue with this. I have some ideas for stuff I like to do, but you know, nowadays access is such a major mm-hmm. issue. You know, even now in Jan, you know, I shot these pictures in November of 2018. In January of 2019, the governor of Nineveh province banned photography in the old city of Mosul. Oh, wow. It's, and it's, as yeah. far as I know, it's still banned. I don't know. My buddy Sengar could say better probably if it yeah. still is or not, but you know, you have to go to like jump like those hoops to, get special permission to even wield a camera in this area. And it's because there's stuff to see there that important people don't want you to see. So there's a lot of stuff I'd like to photograph where access is a major issue these days, but yeah. we'll see, we'll see what we can, what we can pull off. You really, uh, I guess you, you came into this at a time when everybody believed that the Bush administration was restricting access to, to war photography, to conflict photography, where you had to be embedded and you had right. And, and um, certain photos couldn't be seen and, and then we had no photos of the soldiers and dra- the coffins and draped flags and things like that. But, but that's the world you came into, right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's a, that's a, it's a fascinating thing now. It, it, I was just starting out when all those debates were kind of kicking off. Um, and then, you know, I did, I did years of embedded photography in, in Afghanistan with U.S. forces. And then I've embedded with Afghan forces and Iraqi forces, you know, both over the years. It's an it's interesting in hindsight to look back on it. That was a contentious debate at the time. Like, what did embedded photography mean, and how was it inherently biased? I think, for my money, at this point, that debate has kind of been solved. I mean, because now we can tell. Now there's no access. Now the embed program is over, and so much happens in our name, paid for with our dollars that we're not allowed to see. You know, mm-hmm. there were two thousand U.S. soldiers in Syria, and there was no embed access. That's you could right. Not spend time with them. There was a Marine unit firing artillery into Raqqa, fired more rounds into Raqqa than any Marine unit has fired since Vietnam. Mm. They melted two 155 howitzer barrels over the course of the campaign, like a three-month campaign. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a, a, a gun, a cannon that shoots a, a, a shell that's probably about two and a half feet tall. They fired so many mm. shells into that city that they melted two of the barrels. We didn't see any of that. No. We weren't allowed to. There's a lot of slickly produced military photography and kind of cool video game looking footage yes, yes. of those units operating, but that's not what we do. That's not and, and there is no there there was no independent view of that. And so I think that while there were like real concerns and, and interesting debates to be had about the efficacy of embedded photography, we can see now that without it we're much poorer. Mm-hmm. Our information environment is much poorer without it, and and I think that on balance it was a it was a net a net good a net plus you know right but yeah for sure I mean like we're at a time when our political and military leaders are 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 very opinion savvy they're very information savvy they know how to manipulate us and especially our readers and so we have to you know constantly work hard to be a step ahead of them to not be a part of that 
propaganda machine and it's possible to do you know i don't i don't feel like that's that that's what i do i feel that right. I, I don't get any sense of pessimism about it from you no, and, yeah. i'm not pessimistic about <laughs> yeah. it at all because yeah. i because i've seen the ways that i've been able to you know maneuver around those mm-hmm. folks to tell the stories i need to tell you know i mean the truth will out eventually you know yeah. and 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 that's my and that's 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 my role is to help shepherd that um, and I believe it will get out. I mean, I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm frustrated every day by the stuff that doesn't get out, by what I know is out there and I can't get to. But that's what keeps me, that's what makes me get up in the morning. Well, that's actually a, a good note to end on. So thank you again for uh, cutting out some time for me. No, thanks yeah. for having me, Michael. It was amazing. Thanks. It's a great podcast. I'm psyched, to, I'm oh, psyched to chat with you. It was a great, great conversation. Thank you. And uh, congratulations on the show and, you know, everything else. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Bye, everyone. All right. Thanks. Thanks.